What is cracking, boys and girls, girls and boys? On this episode of the podcast, I talk to David Greenfeld. He is the founder of Dream Pops, a.k.a. the new Flintstone Push Pops, a.k.a. the most delicious frozen treats you'll ever put inside of your mouth. And we talked a lot about the food and beverage business, the state of the union, if you will, on the industry, and a lot of detailed stuff. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. And without any further do please welcome David Greenfeld. What is going on, Mr. David in the house? What is happening? Happy to have you here, man. We're talking about dream pops and all kinds of food stuff. Dude, it's a pleasure to be here. Nick, thank you for having me on. I'm excited. I've been listening to your content and I'm pumped. To be here. So That's awesome, you. man. Yeah, likewise, <laughs> dude. Um, you know, I was I was thinking uh, in preparation for this, I was like, mm, what is my history of consuming like frozen pop like treats or ice cream or you know popsicles that whole that whole thing and as a kid i have this strange fond memory of just consuming like those flintstone push pops dude flintstone push pops are money um on top of that did you ever have the spongebob popsicles with the bubble gum eyes (laughs) they're honestly someone needs to just consolidate the wild sugary confections that we had (laughs) over like tens 20 plus years growing up Bubblegum eyes. I mean, let's think what else you got. You got Rocket Pops. I mean, you name it, man. We we ate it. <laughs> the Rocket Pops. Rocket Pops are the uh, the 4th of July, like uh, yep. American flag colored ones, right? Yep. End up all over your face. Yep. You know, you got blue, white, red all over, you know, your cheeks and your lips. You name it. What a great so. eating experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those Flintstone Push Pops, I feel like... I don't know if you grew up, if anybody that's listening to this grew up in the nineties or had children that grew up in the nineties, you're probably buying or eating these Flintstone push pops. And I was thinking like, what, what was the inspiration for launching a pop brand? And when I look at it, and of course I don't play in the frozen food space that much, but I really don't see that much innovation happening there at all, really, except for what you guys are doing. Yeah. I think, um, it's interesting when you start something, I'm sure you can relate to this. Um, there's always a, you know, an initial obsession or maybe a problem that you're solving and then there's a macro extension into sweets confections or whatever you know the surrounding category is that's adjacent or related um but back to your question you know why frozen why novelties number one i have a massive sweet tooth um so you know in my old job when i was an eye banker working late late nights in my cubicle i'd be eating all sorts of sweet snacks uh sugary treats but mainly a lot of magnum ice cream bars and haagen ice cream bars and you know it really came to a point where um i started noticing myself putting in late nights long weeks um and i would crash the next day and then i was like hmm i wonder why i feel terrible <laughs> most days maybe it's because i eat all the sugar and all these dairy products and um started to really identify um, you know, my, my consumption habits and started to switch and prescribe to a plant-based diet. And so that led me down the grocery store frozen aisle looking for alternatives. Um, and everything that was coconut milk based or almond milk based or whatever it might be, it just had this bad chalky aftertaste. Um, it was filled with sugar and it just didn't deliver on the most important product attribute, which was taste, uh, to replace, uh, my, my bad eating habits. And so initially that spark was like, man, frozen snacking has not kept up with the times. It's something that I've been conditioned to love via 
our SpongeBob Pops, our Rocket Pops, our Flintstone Pops. We love these sugary confections, but why hasn't anything um, really kept up with a functional, uh, better-for-you approach? Right, and and do you find that, and at least I've found in certainly the past, call it six to eight years, there was sort of this thing where a lot of the conventional snacks and frozen treats and things like that just ran the supermarkets. And now this influx of things like what you're doing, what I'm I'm doing, you know, all these smaller brands that are doing cool and unique and interesting things are sort of just taken over bit by bit. Uh, is that is that also true in the frozen space? You know, you see the halo tops, you see cool house, you see a couple of them doing it. You see dream pops. Um, when you think of conventional and you look at that landscape and, and by conventional, I mean sort of your big grocery stores, your Walmarts and Ralph's and Safeways and Albertsons, are they starting to become more sensitive to making that switch? Yes. I think um, it's awesome that we can actually have this conversation because you're identifying chocolates and chocolate, you know, you're also in confection, so I feel like you can relate to this. Um, you know, realistically, ice cream is a very intimate product. People are typically very brand loyal um, once they've found their ice cream product or novelty that they love. Um, I think that consumers are getting smarter about what they're eating on a daily basis and are realizing that the Nestle ice cream cone or whatever it might be just doesn't fit within their dietary restrictions. And so brands like Barnana, um, brands like the other ice cream brands, uh, products that you mentioned, are looking for functional attributes and are making products that are more uh, customized to a generation that's you know, A, either want something more indulgent, exploratory, experimental, or frankly, healthier and cleaner. Right. I guess it makes sense, too. If, if you think about, you know, some of these brands that are, that are on the shelves now, and of course, they've entrenched themselves in billions and billions of dollars in marketing and sales and team and all this stuff where they're, they're very hard to you know defeat in a lot of ways. And then sort of it is the David and Goliath story, right? Like we are the Davids, uh, which is hilarious, actually talking to a dude <laughs> named David um, yeah. <laughs> against the Goliaths of the Nestle's and things. And I feel like, you know, if you think about uh, the older generations, be it our parents, or our grandparents and things like that. They were driving cars that, that they grew up with. Like, we're not driving the same cars. We're not wearing the same clothes. We're not. And so it would make sense that Butterfingers or whatever is just <laughs> not going to be sort of our generation's cup of tea. Um, and, and I don't know why it's taken such a long time for food and beverage to really do that, but it is finally, and it's kind of cool to see. I guess it's just, it, it's it's lagged behind some of the other consumer products. I think it has to do all with well a handful of factors. One is the attention funnel. So pre previously, these multinationals they owned the they had the capital and the budgets, and they understood media distribution, tra traditional media distribution. So they could put out the big Super Bowl ads, uh, you know, could distribute their commercials across traditional television and linear television, and now. You know, myself, people like myself and, and, and Barnana and your brand, other brands um, can really create a world for their respective lifestyle brand. I mean, what you guys have done, even extending into in real life with the banana car, like that's iconic. Like, you know, that that is something at the level that a Kraft Heinz or a Mars does. Um, and so when somebody can compete um, with that attention funnel, capture that that audience and those eyeballs and those impressions and build a brand on top of that, on top of really um, accessing some real consumer innovation and, um, you know, 
allowing the customer to discover you in the same distribution channels, um, I think a generation is just going to have more affinity towards a product like yours that's really communicating to them and with them uh, where they live. And that's back to where do you and I discover new products on traditional television? Nope. Nah. Omnichannel on social in real life at pop-ups uh, when I see a banana cart etc <laughs> right so. yeah well when you see the banana car driving down the street it's so kind, of, kind of hard not to see <laughs> you know um, yeah um, it's funny when i was rolling around with uh, t-pain for the fuse tv show you know everybody's like looking at us and waving and stuff and and he's you know soaking it up i'm like hey bro you know uh you think they're all waving at you because you're t-pain but actually, it's because you're in a giant banana car. They don't even know you, man. Yeah, they don't even know who you are right here in the random place of Burbank. Yes. Um, yeah, that is an interesting point. And, and you do see it not even just in food and beverage, but sort of all over the place, sort of the democratization of access to mediums, like even this podcast, right? I mean, if you were going to try and do this in 1985, you'd have to be dealing with the FCC and be on KCRW, you know, and do the radio Dude, guy voice. I think and you could have been a radio guy in another life. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, man. I really think maybe, dude, Howard Stern versus Nick, the Nick Ingersoll show 20, 30 years ago. I'm right? convinced. <laughs> dude, it's, it's one of those weird things like the internet and, and our generation being one of the very first ones to ever have access and grow up with the internet natively in our lives is just provided us so many things that I think a lot of people, including you and I, probably don't think about on a daily basis, right? Because you have your cell phone in your pocket and you're pulling it out and you're getting on the gram and Twitter and whatever. And, you know, it's or even a podcast, like you don't have to pay to listen to this thing, right? And I don't have to pay anybody to do it other than to just host the audio. It's totally democratized. And when you do see the Nestle's and the Mondelez's and, you know, et cetera, uh, they got to be thinking in there. They are adapting. But man, that's got to be a scary thing if you're the chairman of that board. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I just think that there is a, a serious disconnect in terms of understanding the audiences that are now looking for those types of better for you products. I mean, they did a phenomenal job over multiple decades, marginally innovating and providing the consumer with, you know, low fat, low carb. Um, I just think now there's also on top of other variables we were talking about, there's access to capital. There's a lot more excitement of people who are putting real dollars into this space, into the natural food industry um, and creating real innovation. You know, when I look at your products, um, there's real tangible innovation that I don't I don't know the history of um, hydrating bananas, but I'm assuming that that supply chain wasn't uh, quite as sophisticated as it is now. And you've probably propelled that um, much in the same way with what we're doing. Um, you know, popsicles have been made for the same way for multiple decades, hundreds of years. And, you know, we're, we've actually created a new craft freezing method um, that is real tangible innovation that big guys um, aren't necessarily going to put the big R&D dollars into because it's unproven. And so guys like you or I who take these risks, yes, there's obviously capital risk associated, but if we can find something break like that's a breakthrough that offers a better product um, net net, then I think that that's a home run. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, sometimes these big multinationals, they do have these little internal incubators and they try to make their own brands and stuff and with varying levels of success, but usually it's a failure because they don't have. Can you think of one that's like it. a breakout hit? The only one I can think of is Bubbly. Okay. By Pepsi. That's that, it. that Michael Bublé commercial. Yeah, was, the Bublé. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Bublé. <laughs> Bublé. And you mentioned it. They launched that with what? A Super Bowl ad. 
Yep. Right? It was Bubbly was all over the Super Bowl ad, um, and they were a little bit late to the game, you know, trying to catch up with LaCroix and these other guys. Uh, I don't drink sparkly water, so, you know, a Perrier and things yep. of that nature. Yep. Um, but most of them don't. Uh, they really, you know, I think there was, might have been a Frito-Lay innovation. I think it was called the Flat Earth chips i'm not fucking around by the, the way flat I earth chips where did god wait this, recently no this oh, was okay. like i don't know maybe a decade ago like it. before this whole like crazy people thinking the earth is still flat thing started happening which is sort of a negative externality of the internet but um yeah you can imagine you know all these people that have you know maybe they got their bachelors and they got their masters and they you know do their whatever for deloitte etc yeah which you know no shade towards any of that but then they get into this big corporation and they're very good at their function and then the big corporation says hey we want you to be an entrepreneur now so make stuff and they're like ah there's no then like i've seen corporate handbooks at some of these big places about innovation and it's like you cannot you know create a 10 step step process to innovating in a category like you will never create something that is radically different if you try and engineer it i mean i don't know i i i my guess is with you guys, there wasn't like, hey, let's identify bananas and let's jump into that category. How can we reverse engineer a chocolate banana snack that people are going to love? Like that, it wasn't, there's no way it was linear. I'd love to hear yeah, kind of, that's right. you know, the initial inception of, of where that innovation came for you guys. Yeah, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head in that it's it's much less prescriptive than these big companies tend to try to make it. And and it makes sense that they would try and make it prescriptive, right? Because everything they do is prescriptive. They usually have a big distribution system and all these different things. And that just does not one-to-one translate into things like innovation. Innovation is a very out-of-the-box, creative sort of process. And so the first thing that we saw were bananas that were just wrapped up in cellophane and sold on street carts. And where was that initial, where was that first moment where you guys saw that? We saw that in South America. Exactly. Yeah. Do you notice, and this is something that I've seen because I just love to study entrepreneurs, that most of these major breakthrough innovations happen when the entrepreneur is traveling abroad. And like a couple case studies, like Howard Schultz discovering the romance of the barista stand in Milan and Verona, Tom's, uh, Blake Mykoski discovering the Tom Shoe beta in Argentina. Um, there's so many of these. Yeah, and there it's, are. Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, either, it's either that or they or somebody came from a country where that exists and it just didn't exist here. Right. Red Bull. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thailand. Yep. Yeah, great example. And, you know, these these multinationals, they also have some random brands you've never heard of in these foreign countries, but they're too scared to bring it into the U.S. and take the risk. Well, shareholders, right? They're, you know, they're worried about Wall Street expectations or that, that quarterly report that's going to say, what's this weird R&D project that costs $3 million or $10 million? Right. Um, so They're like, and it's not profitable. What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> you know? exa- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's interesting. And, you know, on the innovation piece, when I look at your pops, there's one very unique thing about it. And so it's not just the substrate or just the ingredients or the way that you make them but the actual shape of the pops and that's one of the very first things that i noticed at least being sort of a product marketing creative guy i look at these pops and i'm like oh those are just beautiful to look at um unlike one of those rocket pops or (laughs) name your litany of popsicles there's like this geodesic sort of and i don't know how you describe it but i would describe it as some geodesic that's exactly i mean that's exactly how you describe it i love it dude (laughs) geodesic frozen treats is what they look like and if you look at it it's just at dream pops on instagram right at yep, dream pops yep, yeah yep. go to add dream pops on instagram and just look at the pop itself you're gonna look at it and be like 
I don't even know if I want to eat it because it just looks cool. Or at least that's that. how I No, I, I appreciate that. You know, a lot of the inspiration came from a guy named Kurt Jones who founded Dippin' Dots, who has an amazing story. Mm. And you should definitely check it out. It is, you know, it's a little heartbreaking with regards to the full entrepreneurial journey. But with him, you know, and I was a diehard Dippin' Dot fan. I don't know if you ate them growing up. Oh, yeah. They created an emotional relationship with a generation. Like, if I see Dippin' Dots now, I will purchase them because it reminds me of when I went to Six Flags and I can remember the first day when I ate them and that they've bottled nostalgia. And so in the same way in that that's a form factor um, that they've, you know, they've, they've really created and become iconic behind. And so when we created Dream Pops, it was about designing a product that's iconic in the same way that a Nike swoosh is iconic or the same way that a form factor, you know, brings a certain feeling or emotion to mind and, you know, really standing out from the respective competition. Most popsicles are the traditional moon shape. So that shape actually requires some unique manufacturing technology. Um, and it's, it's what's really given us what we believe is, you know, a unique delivery system and, and a way of standing out from a lot of the competition. Yeah, it's one way to stand out, too, without having to, you know, it's not like you're, uh, you know, putting uh, lipstick on a uh, elk or something like that. I think the pig is the actual uh, thing. But <laughs> change it up. Um, you know, but I'm not putting lipstick on a rainbow trout. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like the actual trout itself is really interesting looking by itself. And... I think that oftentimes when people are innovating things and in, in whether it's entrepreneurs or giant corporations or whoever it is, it's it's sort of an afterthought as to the way the product looks. Because look, you could have made the same recipe, right? The same good ingredients, the same sort of USPs in, in terms of product. But if you put it into a Otter Pop style package, it would just not be as shareable. It would not be as cool to look at. It would not be one of those things that people look at me like, what is that? You know, like I, I don't think we'd be sitting here. I like, I don't think that the business would still be running to be honest with you. And that was back to, you know, so many people, by the way, hundreds when we were first launching this, um, were like, why well, I don't understand. That's such a unique manufacturing method and it's not scalable and it's not possible to scale it. You should just go to a co-packer and use the same, you know, close to the same formulation, get a traditional moon shape pop or an otter pop or some sort of a form factor that's scalable. Um, and then, you know, you'll be far more successful. And frankly, I think that actually would have killed the company because there's nothing that unique about it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's right. And it, it's easy to, to sort of just, you know, take the easy road. And that's often a lot of what I talk about is like, yeah, well, if, if it's that easy, it's probably not going to be as successful as it could be, if at all. Because if it was easier, if you do the easy thing, well, then that's way lower of a barrier of entry for anybody else to just go in and do the exact same thing and just knock your shit off. And yep. even when you look at the market, so dude, right now we are in like the age of the knockoff shit. Golden era of CPG, you go to, you literally, if you bring anything innovative to an expo, West, East, you know, any trade show, um, there's three to five, 10, 15 people that'll copy that yeah. at the next show. Yeah. So I guess I'd actually ask you, like, what were some of your biggest supply chain challenges? And I think that oftentimes as entrepreneurs, you get so nervous because all these people say you can't do it. <laughs> we literally spoke to 50 industry specialists who most people thought said, no, impossible, can't do it. And it finally took, you know, we got lucky. We found one supply chain team that eventually was like, yeah, we can scale this. It's going to be a lot more challenging and it's the longer road. But if you do this, 
then we think you have a really viable business opportunity. Yeah, it's it's really easy to say you can't do that. And at least in my life, that's been the story of my entire life. Oh, you can't do that? What makes you think that you can fucking go and do that? And all these, you know, like that's how all these people sound to me. So true. It's just like, you know, just like suck it. Right. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. And then in X amount of time, I'm going to send you some in the mail with a love note and then say, enjoy this. Most people won't work for two to three years to do it. Yeah. Ninety nine point nine percent of people will give up. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, the industry expert thing is a weird thing, too, because while it's valuable, if you get somebody who's been in a sales position or a marketing position or a name your litany of positions at, you know, whoever, Smucker's company, etc., they're going to be seeing things through a fundamentally different lens. They're going to be seeing things in terms of, okay, how do I reduce the overall risk here? Or how do I optimize every single cent of margin out of the gate? Which, of course, you need margin. Of course, you should reduce your risk, but not to the debt of your actual business can i mean if you're trying to optimize for profitability too early in your business life cycle you will go out of business right um, if you're not taking the land grab of opportunity and that small window where your product is relevant and scaling you know then it may be too late or another company might jump on that first with yes unit economics for one two years i'm not saying operate a business with negative unit economics what i am saying is like you just said um, sometimes bringing in the person with x pedigree can actually it's just the wrong part of the life cycle of the company it can be to the detriment yeah it's true it's it's weird because you don't know what you don't know but sometimes in not knowing it's a it's a hidden strength in the weirdest way it's so true i mean everyone's like yeah i was never in the food and beverage industry and then i launched a food and beverage brand and it was the best thing i could have done <laughs> and it actually is because you're doing things that the blank corporate manual would think is a waste of time and sometimes those unscalable things that you're doing create long-term uh, lifetime value to the customer, virality, word of mouth, um, something that's going to allow your brand to, to, to step outside of even food and beverage and maybe even create cultural relevance. Right. And with your supply chain, are you vertically integrated? We are. You are. So and we have a factory in uh, South Central in downtown LA. In downtown LA. Mm-hmm. In what? Compton Watts? It's uh, in, yeah, in South Central. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, just South Central General. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where oftentimes you do go to a co-packer and um, when you're dealing with a vertically integrated business and Barnett isn't fully vertically integrated, but we have a very close relationship there. We sort of own the supply chain. Um, when you're making something as unique as Dream Pops, how has the experience been out of the jump manufacturing your own product in that way? I mean, we were literally making Dream Pops in my mom's kitchen to start. Um, and then we moved into a smaller space, um, you know, smaller facility. We went shared kitchen, then smaller facility. Um, and now we moved into, you know, our largest um, you know, operation, which has been really exciting, but you know, it's gone from a, a manual process where we were individually making these pops. We then assembly lined, um, you know, the entire manufacturing process. Now we're automating the the machinery and equipment and bringing in real scale. And you know, the second you three x, five x, ten x capacity, it's so interesting. Um, I think that 
right now. I've seen a lot in food and beverage, and I'm curious if you've seen other models. There's really this uh, revival of, of American manufacturing, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, because of the technology and the hardware that's available and the technological applications, there's this next gen of American manufacturing that I get really amped about. Like the fact that we manufacture our product um, we're we're building unique equipment that's never existed. It, it it makes me nervous because of the capex spend, but it gets me jacked up because it's like, you know, I'm I'm an American manufacturer. Like that yeah. feels good. That's cool. And it should feel good. <laughs> and you know, I I think that a lot of people that are not involved in manufacturing in any way, they hear you know made in America or whatever, and and they think it's a political thing. No, no, no. It is an economic thing. It is a you should make your things close to you. It is the best possible thing so long as the cost makes sense to do that. And and there is a big revival going on. Um, you know, you see it even our packaging is all being made in the U.S. now. Um, where formerly before you had to go to China to get the equivalent uh, technology, um, mostly because it was banned in the U.S., but like there is a revival. I mean, you can look at Tesla, you can look at any number of businesses. Um, even Jocko Willink has a... a now I'm going to blank on the goddamn name of the uh, origin Maine. Um, and it's this thing in Maine, of course, uh, where they make jeans and, and jujitsu geese and all these things. And it is really cool to see, you know, and I do think that as we start to see the more traditional manufacturing jobs go away, your mining and your oil stuff and things that may be sort of automated away in the future, there's a whole different generation of manufacturing that could be held in the U.S. And I think that's something special. And as that continues to happen, imagine the types of products we're going to be consuming, even in food and beverage, in 10 years. Like, I know that there's, it almost sometimes is like, oh my God, another CBD water or whatever, functional beverage or food or snack, or you could argue ice cream um, is, is coming onto the market. But if you really think about it, you know, it's such an exciting time to be a consumer. It's probably the best time ever to be a consumer. Think about all the options we have when you go to your local Erewhon or Whole Foods, especially here in LA, like what we get to consume. It's it's kind of mind-blowing. It is <laughs> mind-blowing. It really is. And I grew up in a very small rural town in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. And even there, it's starting to get there because they now have the internet at scale. You know, growing up, that was the only way that I knew I wanted to move to California is because I could see it on the internet yep. and then I could go on Yahoo chat or AIM or MySpace or whatever and talk to people that live there. And so by the time I moved to California, I already had friends on the internet for two years. And the same is true for the access to products. Like these, these retailers in remote areas of the country see this cool stuff. And they're like, well, why can't we have that? Why does it have to just be in LA? And even retailers like Walmart are starting to open up and say, well, we need to get ahead of this because we definitely don't want to fall behind. Totally. Totally. I mean, even now, all retailers, the Walmarts, Targets, Costco's, obviously Whole Foods has, has been you know there as well. Um, they're really excited about these challenger brands, which gives so much opportunity to CPG and consumer entrepreneurs who are building these you know these next gen brands. Yeah, so. and and before this, uh, you were in investment banking. Is that what you're I doing? I was. Yeah, yeah, suit and tie every day. Hey, you little wolf, a Wall Street <laughs> guy sitting across from me. <laughs> well, a wolf Dude, another, in sheep's clothing, lifetime. if you will. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. As you have a nice sheepskin uh, behind you. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's fascinating, actually. Um, you know, I think oftentimes when entrepreneurs do start something, they don't have, at least in my experience, and this is certainly something that I have noticed and people that have reached out to me, e even through the podcast of just listening, they don't know or there's no real person to tell them. It's not something they teach you in undergrad, in college. It's not something they teach you even when you get your MBA is like, so how does this whole financing thing work? work. What are the terms? What are the this? What are the that? And 
I don't know, man, I feel like at least in, in that particular regard, you at least had some foresight into what you were getting into. How did that play? You know, was it just being around these sort of private equity money dudes that was like, ah, I know how those people think or how was that? Yeah. Um, so initially, to be honest, when I think about my experience in banking and kind of how, you know, what I was focused on, the goal there was to learn as much as humanly possible. I will say some of the smartest people I've, I've met and come across are in, are in finance, whether that's in private equity, growth equity, VC, and investment banking, um, consulting. You have to be brilliant um, to really, you know, build these financial models, understand the businesses inside and out. You know, you literally find a new company and you learn everything about them within one to two months time. And then you're expected to, you know, pitch 30, 50 X number of people and then sell that company or, you know, get financing for that business. So you need to know, you need to become an industry expert in one to two months. And you're doing that every time you bring on a new company. So it's, it's, it's an incredible place for, for learning and education. Um, the problem is, you know, it requires a lot, a lo- like so much work and output and then the hours are, you know, pretty intense. And most importantly for me, I felt that I was prioritizing financial gain and I was losing, like, for, I, I do see myself as an artist, you know, fun fact, in another life I was also a hip-hop artist and a rapper and I still freestyle on occasion. Sick. Love music. Um, unrelated but bottom line is um i've always loved also just uh, entrepreneurship I, I tried to start a box wine company in college with a close friend of mine to break the stigma associated with box wine so i had my first taste of food and beverage a uh, quick anecdote when we launched the box wine just wine shout out to max henchman shout out to Ma- who max the, max henchman max henchman he's the man out. we uh we launched just wine which was a beautiful ironically geometric wine boxed wine um and we put them into three Whole Foods, and we didn't realize that if there was, uh, you know, yeast in the bladder, um, and we actually didn't fill them properly, they might actually explode. So we had Whoa. boxes of uh, of just wine exploding on Whole Foods shelves, and we Whoa. were quick, quickly kicked out of Whole Foods, um, and that ended my wine career. Um, but That's it insane. was it was wild, <laughs> but an incredible experience, and um, I really that was my first dabble and taste of of you know CPG, and enjoyed it. Um, and then went into banking after that. And I think uh, having a little taste, um, studying the wine industry, understanding packaging and pack- packaging differentiation was enough of a spark and, and an excitement to uh, to eventually go into it later. Um, but really thinking through, you know, I, I also learned, you know, how much capital is required for these businesses. Um, you know, understanding unit economics, looking at your, your margins, um, and ensuring that you have a realistic point of view when diving into f- to, to CPG because as I'm sure you can share with, with everyone, consumer brands take 3, 5, 7, 10, 15 years to build. It is the ultimate marathon. And if you don't have the psychological, emotional, or financial um, persistence to build this thing, and that requires the biggest leap was you need to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to take a salary for a year and a half and I'm going to self-fund this thing two years. I'm going to self-fund this thing because I believe in something bigger here and I'm, I'm focused on legacy and creating something that really moves me and that I think that, yes, in the long run, we may create 
um, you know, value that hopefully will result in financial independence, but you need to eliminate short-term expectations and goals financially. That's right. Yeah. I think if anybody's listening to this that hasn't started their own thing and they think that, oh, you know, these guys, you know, they start a thing and then all of a sudden it's a big success and blah, blah, blah. It's just not, you know, it's like a super dirty, depressing sort of start to stuff, you know, when you're self-financing it. If if your family doesn't have money, if you don't have money, what are you going to do? You're side hustling at night, every single night. You're sacrificing your relationships with your family or your friends or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever it is. And, um, you know, I think that like you said, it, it really is a marathon or a triathlon in some ways, you know, it's this really long, grueling, mentally straining, physically draining thing. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of psychological perseverance and strength and, and, and self-belief. Um, you know, it's, you don't want to be overconfident and be boastful, um, because everybody sees that as just being a douchebag, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah douching it up when you do that, <laughs> you know, get my gold watch and pose next to a rental Ferrari. Um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Um, you know, but you do have to have the self-belief that like, yeah, I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing and then therefore hopefully be financially independent in the future. What has driven you through those really difficult times? Cause they just obviously come with every business. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, man, it, my, the majority of my life, I just grew up so poor. Um, you know, that, there, I was never in a million years ever going to allow myself to live like that as an adult. It's just not, it's just not going to happen, you know? And so, uh, the, the number one thing that you can control is the amount of work that you put into things. Like that is a, the single most controllable independent variable that you can, you know, work smart all you want, whatever, but the more hours you put in or the more hours you're putting in period. Right. And so that's always the approach that I took. It's just like, you know, whatever's happening now, it a is not going to be any worse than what I already came from. Right. I mean, I used to live in neighborhoods like South Central in, in San Diego. And before that I was living in sort of the rural poor and like, you know, that at least for me has always been the thing. It's, you know, the self-belief, it's the drive. It's, I'm never going to allow myself to be like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to let that happen. I made that decision when I was uh, a teenager, you know, to get out of there and, um, and to do that thing. So for me, it's been that. Um, and I think in large part, at least a lot of it is discipline too. It's, you know, it's one of those things where, you have to have discipline in everything to have discipline in anything. And if I ever feel myself, you know, oh, you know, it's been a hard day and some shit happened or whatever, and you still got these three things you need to do at night. And then you sit on your couch and you're like, you know what? I had a hard day and I'm just going to feel sorry and watch YouTube videos. And then, <laughs> you know, you, you tell yourself, no, you're not, bitch discipline have to do it have the discipline get your fucking ass up and do those three things and that's actually going to make you do more of those things in the future um and so at least in part that's that's how i deal with a lot of it. have anchor habits helped you as well with that discipline like for me i've had to create certain anchor habits that i've done consistently that help me stay disciplined um i don't know if there's something that you do whether that's working out or meditation or mm. anchor habits yeah i mean i do uh i do make a habit of uh always always sitting down and writing always and that's future planning that is sort of you know your daily weekly to-dos as well H- handwriting always handwriting so you're all always. like when you have a chance 
you where you're sitting, you will always just to do lists or creative writing or to do lists, creative writing, you know, brainstorming of other wild and different things. My brain goes in a million different ways in terms of creating like stuff that I'll probably never launch. Um, I have a, I have a, a book called just a, bad, a book of bad ideas, and it's all like that's the awesome terrible entrepreneurial ideas I've come up with um, over time. But yeah, I really do think taking your thoughts and writing them down with a pen and paper is super important. It's a fundamentally different sort of exercise. Your brain connects with the paper and the pen in a different way than it does on the computer. And oftentimes I'll take those notes and I'll put them onto the computer if I feel like I need to archive them to keep them for some reason. But um, that's one of the main ones, of course, working out and, and jujitsu and, and kickboxing and all the rest of it as well. But um, what kind of anchor habits have you built in? You know, is this something where uh, it's, it's a daily habit or a weekly habit? Or, you know, one of these things that sort of trigger your mind into doing a a subsequent task? Totally. So about a year ago, I went a little meta. And, uh, you know, I do work with uh, a life coach, Kai. Shout out to Kai. He's the man. He's changed my life. Incredible guy. Um, Every Sunday, we we have, you know, about an hour session. But he's helped me create... You know, it's uh, every day I do about a 30-minute meditation. Uh, it's either in the morning or at night, typically at night. Um, it's a combination of breathing exercises, um, some breath work, uh, gratitude. Um, so really deep on gratitude for everything in my life that I'm, that I'm grateful for. And then it, it, it ends with a visualization exercise and visualizing everything on a per- personal and professional level that I need to accomplish and then dialing into, you know, personal mission um, for what I want to really just contribute to to the world and doing that consistently for, you know, literally I'm on day 290 today of 290. But who's counting? But who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I've noticed that since I started doing that, obviously working out and running and, and eating well, those are important, but this has been a game changer for me within the last year. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that, uh, and you feel you hear a lot of people talking about visualizing things, but I really am a huge, huge believer in that. And especially when it comes to difficult tasks, you know, if, if you have to go up and do something, if you're pitching your startup or you're doing public speaking or you're doing this goddamn podcast yeah. or whatever it is, like you kind of <laughs> have to put your, if you put your eyes into the eyes of that future person who is you in that moment, it then allows you to say, okay, well, what is the worst thing that could happen in that moment? And then what is my best self in that moment? And then you focus on that. And then that's how you will act in that moment. It's almost like you're practicing it without practicing it. It's like, you know, practice makes perfect and all that. Well, it's kind of like doing that just in your mind. Do you ever put yourself purposely in as many uncomfortable situations as possible to make yourself grow? Oh yeah, I mean that's yeah. Story I, of my love that. life. I love that. I love it. It's I mean, such like uh, oh you you want to you know give give that speech to ex or you know I don't know I'm not thinking of great examples on the spot but anything that will make me uncomfortable like with that discomfort comes growth every time. Yeah, um, same, same, and the more speech, things that interview whatever it is, right? And the more the more ways you can uh, sort of build that into uh, a thing that you do on a more consistent basis too. I think is important. Like at least for me, you know, if I go out bow hunting in the forest by myself with a bow and a sidearm and just trying to figure shit out for seven days straight, you know, that's an incredibly difficult task. And, um, you know, it's things like that. It's things like jujitsu where you have, you know, a grown man on top of you and you can't escape and you're getting crushed and you can't breathe and they're trying to rip your face off, you know, and it's things like that where you overcome them. And it definitely, definitely makes me more resilient. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Is there, so hold on, I want to talk about this rap thing because it already like uh, escaped out of my head. So 
musician myself. Uh, yeah. Not rapper, of okay. course, but what, I do what enjoy. Do you, what do you play? Um, well, I started out singing in the choir uh, when I was a young kid, and then I uh, was in several punk bands and death metal bands, things of that nature. And now I mostly write acoustic um, Americana style music. Epic. Yeah. Um, as you can see, all the fucking guitars on the wall. Yeah. Um, but what? Uh, what kind of? Well, actually, I'm going to start by asking you: Who are your favorite modern day relevant rappers? Number one that comes to mind is Logic. Ah, I knew it. I love Logic. Just get a oh, sense. man, I've been following Logic for forever. Uh, he's just there's a level of intellect. It's almost like you know we were talking about with multinationals like old school traditional rappers versus Gen Z next level uh, relevant rappers to you or I. Um, you know, Logic is a great example. I don't know if you've watched his documentaries or listened, you know, studied him. But he's a perfect example where he self-distributed for a long time and leveraged his digital brand to be one of the number one selling artists um, and streamed artists in the world. Insane. And these, these, you know, this older generation of rappers didn't have access to those distribution channels, didn't understand the art of social media the same way he did. Um, and it's, I mean, what, I don't know. He's, he's such a badass. Yeah. I've actually <laughs> been listening to a ton of logic recently. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, the song that he did with, uh, Eminem, of course, is one of the newer ones, uh, called homicide. Yep. Absolutely insane. The words per minute, this dude is putting out of his mouth. Absolutely crazy. Have you seen him freestyle rap while solving a Rubik's Cube? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Badass. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a savant hip hop artist. Yeah. It's very crazy. He's a monster. Um, yeah. So him, Chance the Rapper, huge fan, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino. Um, and then, I've, you know, I like the, you know, I'm a, I'm a Tupac and I like Biggie and I like Jay. Yeah. Old school, classic, classic rappers. The old stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, it's weird. I, I, I never really enjoyed the old rap, but I do enjoy a lot of the new rap. It's a very odd yeah. thing. Um, what about Nas? You spending time with Nas, Nas? Yeah, yeah. I okay. think he's an exception, or like you know, Army of the Pharaohs and things like that. Yep. Um, you know, there there's certainly exceptions, or the cunning linguists. Hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics. I love the cunning dream linguists. team. Cunning linguists. <laughs> cunning linguists. Dude. Um, yeah, some Bay Area. Like yeah, there was bro. some cool Bay Area rap. Yeah, dude. Hieroglyphics. The, hieroglyphics, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Vinnie Pazienza, that whole thing. Yep. You know, those. Um, uh, actually, my my I had an older cousin who was really into like the super underground hip hop and so you know as a teenager I just grew up listening to that kind of stuff along with death metal sort of my two uh, nice who's your favorite death metal band favorite one Mm, I don't know if I have a favorite because I like so many of them just a couple notable yeah I think um, Misericordium is a band that was in Vegas that they made like five songs once and then they never released a thing again I don't know what happened to those guys yeah but those five songs I fucking love. Um, Suicide Silence is probably another one of my favorites. Uh, Mitch Lucker, he died in a motorcycle accident actually a couple years ago. So shout out to him and, and his family and, and the band. They're still doing their thing. Um, you know, All Shall Perish is pretty good. Winds of Plague. Uh, What's Bring a me death the metal concert like? I've never been to one. It is the most exciting genre of music to view live to be present live they have some of the most loyal fans yeah all time 
Oh, yeah. All time. Yeah. You know, no one's really on drugs. Some people are, um, you know, part of the hardcore scene, which uh, in large part is straight edge. So they don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't do any of the things. They're just hardcore, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that. But, um, you know, it's it's the most exciting genre. One, it's a band, right? So you have three to seven dudes usually on stage, you know, jamming out and really, really, really just talented you know, and, and everybody's in step. It's not like there's just, a, you know, speakers and just like a beat playing and then somebody rapping over their own lyrics. Yeah, like such a, a f- common misconception with this genre. I actually would yeah. love to hear more like the dissection. Like someone needs to do a documentary on the top death metal acts because <laughs> yeah. I would watch that. Like that's interesting. As I Lie Dying would be a good one. They won a couple of Grammys um, and, and they're super technical. And, you know, the difference, at least in my mind, is like, you know, you go to a rap show, it's usually a dude on stage and, and I'm, bri- I'm obviously painting this <laughs> with a real broad brush. And I've been to a couple of them, you know, atmosphere and, and things. And I, yeah. I, I, I like it. But um, I will say it's usually uh, somebody pressing play, right? And then it's... Yep. And then it's uh, the rapper up there. And oftentimes they're just rapping to the sound of their own voice, almost like a karaoke. They're doing karaoke to their own song totally. most of the time. Yeah, most of the time the lyrics are playing in the back while they're rapping over it. Which is so awkward and weird. Yep. Um, and, you know, and there's also sometimes like 20 other dudes on stage just like jumping around like, you know, Dude. which is the weirdest <laughs> shit I've ever seen in my life. Um, and <laughs> with EDM, everybody's on drugs. I love EDM as well. Um, shout out to EDM. I, I love EDM. But, um, you know, everybody's on Molly and sometimes the DJs are actually mixing and doing their thing, like the Steve Aoki's and sort of the black belt level guys. But a lot of them are just going doo 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 beep, <laughs> and then just fist pumping the rest of the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with with metal, you can't fake it. There's no other way to do it. Like you have to. The drummer has to be on point. The guitar player's got to be in rhythm with the drummer. Um, you know, the whole bit really has to work together, almost like a miniature uh, violent orchestra. I love it. Were you, did you have a death metal band? Oh yeah. What was it called? Uh, well, one of them was called a Deadwood Calamity. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that was, uh, we had a keyboardist at the time. So, um, yeah, (laughs) we call ourselves keyboard metal. Um, but yeah, man, it was, it was really fun back in the day. Super cool. Back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so rap, so you, so you were rapping. What was that? What was that like? Yeah. My, uh, our hip hop group's name was Lifestyle. Um, the, the Y and the I were flipped, so, you know, it's pretty cool. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, look, it was in college, um, it was myself, Daniel DeKiro, Melody Corsandy, shout out, what a, what a squad. Um, you know, we had one song, it was called Mother Nature, that, that kind of went viral. We put it out as our first song, and we were just having fun with it, and the next thing we knew, you know, this, this song had like hundreds of thousands of views on, on YouTube, wow. and that was back when, like, there weren't, that wasn't really a thing, it was just you know, a couple things would, a couple pieces of content would go viral. And so this first song we put out, you know, was a hit and it was great. And that led us to just, you know, we put out an EP, we did a, uh, an album, we did shows, we performed at Berkeley. Um, you know, we performed at Santa Barbara and that was, you know, I, I really missed that. I think that was such a creative point in my life where we were just, you know, we made hundreds of songs, we threw on a beat, um, I'd even produce some beats and, you know, I think that I'm sure you can relate it. I feel like you take a lot of that artistic creativity with a lot of the marketing and, and all the work that you do with, with Barnana. You know, it's funny. I was just going to say that. I feel like a lot of the entrepreneurs that, that I know and respect, they also were doing or have done or continue to do other just weird shit. 
like being like being a hip hop artist is weird shit. Yeah. Death metal bands. Totally weird shit. <laughs> you know? And like, even though it doesn't, it doesn't make logical sense to one to one translate into something like a startup. It actually tends to be pretty highly correlated in, in strange ways. I feel like, you know, especially the ones that, that you see that are really focusing on brand and marketing and things of that nature. Uh, a lot of people have interesting and different backgrounds than you would suspect. Like you're not getting your sort of straight laced valedictorian accounting major guy that goes out and starts the next whatever company. It, it does happen, right? But not nearly as often, I don't think. I think that entrepreneurs generally tend to be a little bit more creative. I think there's this fearlessness that you obviously embody um, or just willingness to really try, like radically test things um, and not give a fuck what other people are going to think about you. And it takes, you know, to start a death metal band, to be a Jewish white rapper at Berkeley. You know, there were people who were like, who the hell is this kid like that thinks he can rap? And I was terrible for the first few years. And then, you know, I could eventually, you know, spit bars. And it was it was cool. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. One of these days, we're going to do whatever, whenever uh, we do another episode of this. I'm done. Um, I'm going to beatbox, and then you're going to throw some freestyle. Done. That's going to be Love awesome. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like, when you're when you're building this business, and you're, you know, you're in Whole Foods, and, and you're doing your thing, sort of, what do you see as the future? You know, obviously you're building the team. You have manufacturing to worry about. You have the brand to worry about. You have awareness to worry about. How do you section those things off in your mind and say, man, if we can just do these three things for the next 24 months, that's really going to get us to where we need to be? Totally. I think, uh, and you know, it's, it's oftentimes where, um, you know, you find something, it took us about two and a half years to find product market fit, whether that was packaging, pricing, how we were selling the pops, how we were marketing and communicating them. Um, what people really resonated with is that, you know, we're a plant-based portion controlled, um, snack that is really unlike what most of the novelties and ice cream bars are offering. It's really about functional frozen and clean ingredients. Um, and, you know, back to your question, there's so, so many opportunities and extensions and line extensions and different products you can launch. You have to be so laser focused on what you're trying to accomplish with us. You know, we're trying to take this from 400 grocery stores to a few thousand, making sure that we're really focused on the velocity and the channel and that you're not just, you know, I see a lot of brands that I've studied that they'll just spread themselves so thin. Like it's all about chasing door count, but realistically it's about, it's about having velocity um, and, you know, strong retail partners that are supporting your growth in store and then using that data to grow um, an additional strong, uh, you know, doors or with other retail partners. So focusing on velocity, um, um, and then for us, what what, what the, the the vision is long term, you know, in the same way that uh, the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers of the world have identified um, alternative meats and proteins, uh, you know, we're looking at the dessert and confectionery category and looking for nostalgic treats and sweets, um, the popsicle being our first product, and trying to reimagine them with a plant-based approach that's clean, that's better for you, and that's really you know has a little bit of magic and uh, and delight. So. Magic and delight. Delightfully like imagined. Delight, <laughs> delight and magic. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's you said something there that, that resonates with me. And I think a lot of people that listen to this too and that haven't started a, a CPG brand that's raised money and, and is scaling, um, you know, you hear the, the store count. And that's a pretty sexy thing, right? It's like, oh, yeah, we're in 
10,000 stores. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, that is so. Mm, 10,000 stores. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, like, if your velocity is fucking 10.1, like 10% of a so unit, true. like, that is, that is the part that 50, is like. 50,000 yeah, doors. 50,000 doors. And it's just like, it's not actually a good thing. Most, most Why of are you in that many stores? Why are you in that many Where stores? Where did you find those stores? Yeah, is your name Mondelez? <laughs> How are you in that? Why? What's going on? Like, in, until your awareness builds to a certain point where you can ensure the velocities are happening in those stores, what ends up happening is you get discontinued eventually. Deceed. The yeah. scariest thing in CPG. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to get done, too. You know? Like, oh, you just, maybe even you have a bad sales guy in a region. Not that I would know. Um, <laughs> and they just like neglect an account because they're playing online pool or something. I don't know yep. what the fuck they're doing. Totally. Um, and then pretty soon you have a weird conversation with the buyer. It's like, hey, we haven't done a promotion in six months. You're like, wait, what? what? And then uh, you're at risk of being discontinued. That's the worst possible thing. And if you don't have the resources to deploy in your 50,000 stores. 50,000 stores. <laughs> and you are so fucked. It's so true. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, in initially when I was really when we were starting in retail, um, we were so obsessed with the store count. And so I would just say any entrepreneurs out there, I'd rather be in one fourth, one fifth, one tenth of the amount of doors and just be the number one, you know, performing or number one velocity product or number two, number three. That's so much better. And then you can use that data. Uh, to gain, you can get distribution really fast if your data is, you know, is sexy. That's right. And, you know, it's it's like, yeah, have a smaller amount of stores, focus on a channel that makes sense. Because, you know, if, you, if you're doing your test stores in Whole Foods, and then you try and take that story to Shell gas stations, they're going to be like... <laughs> Uh, cool, but uh, 80% of our consumer base are truck drivers or yep. whatever. I don't know if that's true, but something like that, right? And um, and so it is slowly building out. Well, what is Whole Foods most relevant to? Well, it's pretty damn relevant to Albertsons and Safeway and Walmart, right? And so you go and you go sell that story to all of them. And then eventually, maybe you do a test in a smaller shell-like station, see how it goes, and then you take that story and sell it and, and go on. I think that oftentimes, too, uh, in, in food and beverage, at least, in CPG more broadly, probably, is when they go into retail, they're just kind of master blasting. You know, they're just shotgun, 12-gauge, and then they just end up in, like, a yoga studio over here and a this and that and a whatever, and then they're not building that story and they're not focusing on the data to sell it to the next guy. I think it's a it's a messaging problem in the industry, but also uh, an incentive issue. So you have guys like us who are trying to build these brands. You know, we're chasing, we're, we're reading these headlines, like, you know, X bar or whatever protein beverage or shake or you know rtd product has raised 10 15 20 million dollars or has just exited and so investors and entrepreneurs read that and people in, in the industry read that and then they're like hey i have to raise x amount of money to keep up or to be relevant or to you know gain the distribution or b you know, I have to impress investors with door count in order or top line revenue in order to get the money to scale my business or even be, you know, stay, stay in business. And so I think that, um, you know, mo most importantly, just remembering that this is a slow growth marathon, you know, multiple year endeavor, five, three, five year endeavor 
um, and growing slowly and responsibly can actually be, you know, your biggest, uh, your tool. Yeah. And I think too, part of the allure is when you see those headlines, it's like, oh, blah, 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 RTD just raised $30 million, you know, Juicero or whatever. Um, (laughs) yeah. If you guys don't know what Juicero is, it's one of those stories. Yeah. Google it. The Bloomberg article will come up probably and go read that thing. Um, you know, and so like, yeah, you, you, you get, a little bit disillusioned by like, oh, this is this must be the path, right? Like, oh yeah, you got to raise thirty million to keep up with whoever, and like, not that that's necessarily the wrong approach in all situations. If you're a second, third, fourth time founder or something like that, that can get a crazy valuation to justify raising that much money. Um, but I feel like you know, there, there's so much money in the ecosystem, at least right now in this current economy, that if you do have something that's unique and different and awesome and has sort of a velocity story, it has a product story, it has these things, like there's going to be money out in the market so long as you know what you are doing or find out how to do that from somebody who has done it. Um, and with that, it's up to you to spend that money how you wish. You don't need to go put a billboard on Sunset Boulevard to stay relevant. And I think it's also the founder just diving deep and having that awareness of, do I want to be a venture business, a venture back business that needs to raise 10, 20, 50, 80 million dollars? Or do I want to slow grow this thing? Because there are plenty, the GTs of the world, the RX bars of the world that built their businesses just by cash flowing them, building really profitable you know, profit-driven strategies and just proving that people would buy the product with a built-in margin. So um, yeah. Yeah, that's another good point is you know, the, the decision to make, to, to raise money, to make money is a big one to make, right? Because as soon as you do that, you have business partners, basically shareholders, right? In your business that they are going to want to see a return and there will be certain expectations placed on the performance of the business. Whereas if you were able to raise $0 in a hypothetical situation and do your thing, well, if you're, if you only grew it 2% this year, well, Nobody cares but you, so it's all on you. Whereas if you did that and you're backed by whatever, right, uh, they're going to be looking at you and be like, hey, man, what's going on? Yep. yep. <laughs> so so what would your advice, I mean, I'm curious what you, you're, I, I, would, I wouldn't consider Barnett to be mature, but I would say you're an established brand that is, you know, large enough to be a notable, more, more in the mature stages of a fast growing emerging brand. Yeah. And so what would you what's your opinion on, you know, what early stage brands like us can do um to really improve the odds of or or improve the probability of success? Yeah, I think the the first thing is to know what the exit strategy is and just be real about that. You know, it, it it's very easy to sort of kid yourself. I, I see it happen a lot. I've seen it happen around me a ton. It's, you know, oh well, you know, we're not building this to sell. Well, you're raising $10 million from venture, what do you think they're going to want? They're either going to want a dividend or you to sell so they can get their cash and some return, right? That is what venture investing is. It's like, you know, if I make an investment, of course I'm expecting some money in return. That's, that's what an investment is not like a donation. And, and, and typically they're not looking for 10x returns. They're looking for 100x or a few 100x returns to return the fund. Yeah. So that's an incentive that they're really, you know, focused on versus a founder who wants to keep the business alive and sometimes focus on the legacy of their brand and, you know, has a different mission than 100x return. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, like, what is what is your future goal? Is this something that you want to do for the rest of your life? Is this something you want to do for the next 
30 years, 20 years, 15, 10, three years, five years, whatever that answer is, is going to sort of create the output that that you need to solve for, right? Because if, if your idea is, yeah, I want to get in here, I want to build an awesome brand for five to seven years and then sell it and then do the next thing. Great. If you want to do this for 20 years, this is the last thing you ever want to do. And even if you do get acquired, be sort of just the founder that has a desk that comes in once a month or whatever and do that, just know the answer to that first, I think. Um, and then also know what you're getting yourself into. You know, there, there's a lot of terms, there's board seats, there's all these crazy legal terms and, and things that show up in term sheets when you raise money that if you haven't done it before, it's going to be a little bit difficult to figure out. Um, and also understand the margin structure. I think that depending on what sort of CPG brand you get into, you know, food and beverage is generally a little bit lower margin than something like supplements or cosmetics. And so it, if you raise money, you're going to have to raise more money than you would if you were selling some powder in a pouch or something of that nature. Um, and so be mindful of that and, and, and do a lot of cash planning. You know, I think you don't run out of cash. And if you get into a distributor based business where you're selling to a distributor that who then sells to Whole Foods, which is the majority of the business, you really need to figure out, OK, well, how long does it take for my cash out to turn into cash in um, because that can get you into a sticky situation and then also have contingencies. Okay, well, I'm going to need to have some debt financing here or I'm going to have to have a line of credit over there or negotiate a better master supplier agreement so I get more favorable terms on sort of the inputs of cash and things of that nature, I would say. Totally. Yeah. I mean, working capital schedules are so important. Understanding how you're going to finance your company um, and really the unit economics moving forward. So couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, we're almost at an hour. So at this point, I have to ask you, what what is next for Dream Pops? Where can people find them? Like, paint the paint the year vision for me and then paint the, the now. Totally. So right now we're in about 400 grocery stores, primarily in the natural channel. Um, you know, Whole Foods is our, our biggest retail partner. So, you know, you'll, you'll be seeing us pop up in more Whole Foods regions. Um, so, you know, hop on over to your local Whole Foods. You know, they're, they're an amazing partner. Um, you know, we're also in a handful of other natural accounts on the West Coast, um, in the Northeast. So, you know, LA, uh, New York City, Boston, San Francisco, um, Hawaii, Arizona, Nevada will also be in the Midwest and in Texas. Um, but really, you know, the goal here is, not ten thousand dollars. dollars. No, it's um it's it's about uh outperforming, you know, other frozen products in our category. It's about I see us as a you know, really we've really doubled down on being a content company, we create a lot of content, whether that's short form video content or photography. You know, um, we try to create this, you know, I, I explained to people we're the Willy Wonka of plant based confections and um, you know, we're very, very conscious of you know, all the audio and visual content that we're putting out and creating this digital world for our customer and this lifestyle brand, which is really important. Um, so yeah, building building our brand and our product in the natural channel um, will then be moving into, you know, conventional and mass. I get really excited about, you know, we have single serving pouches and four packs. Those singles, um, you know, we have these these vertical freezers that are in a couple Whole Foods that, you know, we would love. Uh, they, they are in a few convenience stores. They will be popping up in the convenience channel. Um, but really thinking about frozen from a grab and go perspective. And, you know, in much the same light that Perfect Bar thought about the refrigerated, uh, you know, protein bar or meal bar, I think there's a massive opportunity within frozen and frozen snacking. And so that frozen snacking revolution is what we're trying to tap into. Interesting. Yeah, that, yes. that, that is interesting. I didn't even think about that because it is true. Like this is a very easy grab and go treat. 
right? Like, boom, open the freezer, ba-bang. Like, mm-hmm. it makes more intuitive sense than a perfect bar, even. Yeah, I think Mimo's done an excellent job. They're an interesting case study. They've got their beautiful freezers in multiple stores. People are grabbing, uh, you know, mochi to go. Um, but I think that with the ice cream bar itself, um, there's so much opportunity. You know, our bar, our chocolate lion is infused with lion's mane mushroom. Um, so putting adaptogens in the product, we have a coconut latte, which has caffeine. You know, we will be infusing protein into our products. Um, I, you know, I personally will work out and have a protein infused dream pop or, you know, uh, something, you know, more along the mango rosemary with that, that'll help, you know, hydrate me or, or, you know, be great after a workout. And so, um, really rethinking that occasion for Frozen and where it can live and how you, it can evolve um, more so than just that late night Netflix and chill, eat your whole pint of ice cream. <laughs> um, we're kind of the antithesis of that. So rather than, you know, a lot of companies are eat the whole pint. Um, for us, it's about portion control. It's about snackability. It's about clean ingredient stacks and uh, and just reimagining ice cream for the next generation. That's awesome. That man, when you're describing those flavors, it's like, I need some co- I need some chocolate with adaptogens in it, bro. Lion. <laughs> chocolate lion mane. Mm. Yeah. Um, so go into Whole Foods, buy these damn things. They are extraordinarily delicious. You Thank will you. easily be able to identify them by their geodesic structure. Um, Dude, the fact that you know geodesic <laughs> makes me so happy. Tetrahedrons. Like, there you there's, go. There's a lot of unique shapes that we're, we're looking into. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and you can go to dreampops.com. To find them, you can go at Dream Pops on Instagram. Uh, the Instagram of Dream Pops, as David was just saying, is really cool. They make a lot of really awesome content, so they're not going to just fill your feed full of some bullshit. Um, <laughs> it's actually a really good feed to, to look at, so go follow them. And then uh, where else can they find you? Your Instagram? Yeah, um, at Dave underscore Greeny. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn. Um, and then, you know, we've been dabbling in TikTok. I think TikTok's a really interesting platform. So check us out at Dream Brands on TikTok. At Dream Brands on TikTok. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Get on that TikTok. Uh, Thanks, bro. Thank you, man. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. We got pretty deep into the food and beverage space. And if you do like this show, please don't forget to press the subscribe button. That would help me out a ton. And also let me know there's somebody out there listening to the show and if you like it go ahead and tell your friends if you think they would like it and if you could write a five star review and let me know what you like the most because then i can do more of that good stuff and until next time i'll chat at you then peace